Let us pray now as we come to the reading and the preaching of God's holy word. Almighty and ever-blessed God, how we give you thanks this morning that in your grace and mercy towards us, you have spoken to us, and that in words which we can understand. Father, we thank you that in your grace, you have condescended, as it were, to speak to us in baby talk, that we might take up your self-revelation, that we might read and understand and come to worship this Almighty God. Father, as we come now to read your Word and to hear it preached, we ask that you would give us humble and teachable hearts, that we would not sit in a posture over your Word, seeking to become masters of it, but rather that we would have hearts of servants, sitting under your Word and praying to be mastered by it. Lord, come now and do good to your people through your Word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. January 7th, 2014, the following report appeared on the news satire website, The Onion. Purchase New York. Area girlfriend, Carolyn Nagler, remains in stable condition at White Plains Hospital today, resting in a medically induced coma after suffering an apparent overdose of scented lotion, sources confirm. Responding to a frantic 911 call from her boyfriend, emergency personnel said they rushed to Nagler's residence around 10 p.m. last night and discovered the 26-year-old unconscious in her bed and surrounded by dozens of empty bottles of daily moisturizers, anti-wrinkle treatments, and hydrating balms, suggesting an acute level of lotion toxicity. When we arrived, Ms. Nagler's blood lotion level was 0.45. That's four times the lethal limit, said emergency responder Ann Jones, noting that in addition to finding levels of Olay and Jergens in her system, Doctors also discovered traces of harder oils like ylang-ylang and jojoba. Her lips were extremely glossy, glossier than I've ever seen before. 
It took us hours to stabilize her shea-soaked skin before we could even begin wiping off the many herbal extracts and replenishing creams, not to mention bath and shower gels. We're guessing that by the time her boyfriend found her, she had been inhaling cocoa butter and eucalyptus fumes for over 45 minutes, Jones continued. One more buff puff of jasmine serum, and it would have been too late. Doctors said that after Nagler arrived at the hospital's trauma ward, it was a race against time to save the young woman's life with teams of nurses working around the clock to neutralize the accumulated layers of almond butters and Moroccan oils, essential fruit extracts, and age-defying exfoliants that had left her skin dangerously supple. After first treating her arms and legs to remove the thick coat of honeysuckle and whipped vanilla gloss, emergency room staff vigorously scrubbed Nagler's body with gauze to help reduce the buildup of vitamin E and hibiscus. Next, the medical team used a high-powered pump to suction the ultra-hydrating lotions from her face and hands, areas that had been exposed to critical periods of long-lasting moisturization. According to friends... Nagler's overdose was the result of being a habitual lotion user whose addiction had, as of late, spiraled out of control. Caroline didn't do this to herself on purpose. She just didn't know her limit, distraught boyfriend Eric Klein told investigators, recalling that Nagler would often come home covered in a layer of lavender salve without acknowledging that she glistened brightly or smelled heavily of morning dew. It's a wonder she hasn't had an overdose yet. It's a full-on addiction. She hides bottles everywhere, underneath the sink, in the back of cabinets. I once saw her pull a small bottle of it out of her purse. She couldn't go 20 minutes without it. It was only a matter of time before she started mixing lotions, Klein continued. (laughs) Every morning, it was a cocktail of prescription-strength aloe vera, rose water, sunscreen, wrinkle revenge cream, and who knows what else. Emergency room doctors say that as lotions become more fragrant, more flirty, and more expensive, hospitals will continue to see cases of women overdosing from the products. In the past week alone, local hospitals treated more than 20 local girlfriends with injuries similar to Nagler's, according to records. The mistake so many women make is thinking they can slather on a layer of cedarwood foam, wait a few minutes, and then start rubbing on some shiny body butter, said emergency physician Dr. Thomas Goyen, noting that his own girlfriend had a close call last week when she applied more than 80 doses of Jerlique balancing spray, or pillow mist, as it's known in street slang. The rule of thumb is to use a quarter-sized dollop of lotion, wait one hour, and then use more if necessary. Oiling up too quickly vastly increases the risk of internal organ failure or worse. If you think you have a problem, please seek help immediately, he continued. Your life is worth more than having silky smooth skin, no matter how soft and luxurious it might feel. That's the onion. On a more serious note, real addictions, not to 
shea butter or Moroccan oil or Elang Elang and Hohoba. I nailed the pronunciation, by the way. Real addictions can work in a lot of different ways, and they can look like a lot of things that you might not even categorize as an addiction. Uh, yet a common thread when discussing addiction is compulsive behavior things that gain control over you, things that you start doing because they promise they're going to help you get ahead or they're going to open doors or they're going to offer you comfort or solace. But then as you become reliant upon them, they start to control you. They start to oppress you and you find yourself doing things that that you know you shouldn't do. The Apostle Paul talks about some of these patterns, which he describes in the Greek as works of flesh, sometimes translated sinful nature. But these compulsions, these patterns over which we long for freedom. We're taking a break this week to look at a passage, not in Matthew's Gospel, but in Paul's letter to Galatians. This is a topic I like to preach on at least once a year, because from a pastoral care of the church perspective, it is one of the most pervasive problems uh, that we struggle with uh, right here in the church as, as Christians. And so we're going to read Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 1, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 13. It's a passage you've probably seen before if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Uh, Turn with me in your pew Bible if you want to find it. It's page 1815, 1815. This is the word of the Lord. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, then, And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And in verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. And so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For contrary to the Spirit, uh, sorry, for the sinful nature, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, You are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature or flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, who've who've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, since we live by the Spirit, friends, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of Christ through his servant, Paul. This morning, uh, I want us to recognize 
that we all have addictions and to look at some of the spiritual dynamic of that addiction as we look to Jesus. First of all, recognize that we all have addictions. You look at Paul's list of compulsive, powerful, destructive behaviors that destroy people's lives and destroy those around them. And what you notice is there is incredible variety here. He talks about some of the things that we would typically think of as addictions, you know, when you're engaging in, in dangerous uh, uh, sexual practices, when you're, uh, you, know, you know, drunk all the time, and yet he, he talks about an incredible pattern here. There's a, a diversity of here, things we might not even categorize ourselves as addictions, like envy. And yet, if you've seen a life that is trapped in a controlling cycle of envy, you know the destruction it can do to their families, to their spouse, to their friends, to their kids, to their parents, uh, the way it can tank their career, destroy their marriage, the way it can turn them inward and, and be just as destructive as an addiction to alcohol or drugs. Um, we all have them, you know. We all have things that we uh, find start in- to enslave us, compulsive behaviors that we want to get away from, we want to be free from. When you, you blow up, like the fits of rage he talks about, when you find yourself blowing up all the time and, and people then start walking around you like on eggshells and they're just trying to make you not, not set you off, not let you blow up, and you realize then that you're completely alone and isolated because you have an addictive cycle of anger exploding, fits of rage, and it's pushed everyone away from you, and they don't want to be around you. They're afraid of you. It's destructive, and you say after each blow-up, you say, i, I got to stop. It's got to end. I, I need help, and, and yet you're going to go right back to it again and again because there's an addictive cycle that's promising you something. There's a hope that you feel some release, some sense of justice, something going on inside of you. We're going to look at what it is going on inside of us that drives this. But first, recognize that we, we all have addictions. And, and Paul says that the works of the flesh are obvious. Uh, when you have an addiction, you might try to hide it really well, but it's going to be obvious once it's out in the open, if not to you, then to other people. Uh, you're going to know it's obvious when you start trying to hide your addiction when you start trying to hide what you've been looking at or what you've been doing or where you've been going or what you've been drinking, uh, that's because it is obvious, Paul says. It's clear as day. It's so obvious you're going to feel a need to conceal it. And that only brings more shame, which makes it even harder for you to deal with whatever it is that has control over you, whatever it is that has control over me. I want to briefly distinguish uh, physical... uh, uh, distinguish addiction from physical dependence because the way it's used like in a newspaper or the onion or whatever it's almost like they're used interchangeably they're two different things uh you can be addicted to something without being physically dependent on it and you can be physically dependent on something without being addicted sometimes if you have a cocaine addiction you're both you're both emotionally and spiritually addicted and physically dependent upon it because you'll have withdrawal symptoms if you try to go off it but you know you're also physically dependent on oxygen and you're physically dependent on food. And uh, you might be, if you've, uh, you know, had a, a, an organ transplant, you might be physically dependent on an anti-rejection drug. Uh, you might even be dependent on a drug like Suboxone, which prevents withdrawal symptoms of opioids. Uh, physical dependence may or may not accompany an addiction. But addiction is something deeper. 
Addiction is something spiritual. Addiction has a spiritual and emotional component. Addiction is the inability to stop something despite the negative consequences. And it can look like a lot of things. I've had friends with food addictions. It's one of the cruelest and most impossible addictions to break because you have to, you have to eat in order to survive. And so much business and so much community and so many relationships happen around food. And when that's your addiction, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, certainly, there are drug addictions, alcohol addiction, pornography addiction, sex addictions. Uh, a friend of mine in college, a buddy of mine in, in crew back, uh, back at UVA, um, one of the strongest Christians I know, he developed an out-of-control gambling addiction after, after college and uh, ended up having to work hard to get free from that. Uh, hoarding disorders in which you can't let go of things. Uh, you know, a friend of mine that was addicted to victimization thinking, where there was a cycle of thought, a thought process that was so powerful. Whenever he felt wounded or injured, he would always go back to it. And in every relationship he had, he ended up defining himself, rightly or wrongly, as the victim. And so every girlfriend, he was her victim. Uh, every job, he ended up being the victim. He went through a lot of girlfriends. He went through a lot of jobs because that, that cycle of thinking, I'm the victim, was so powerful and so imprinted so early on in him that he projected it onto every relationship he had, which meant that he was alone because it was out of control. It was controlling him, and he couldn't get free. Out of control anger like fits of rage. Video game addiction. You think, gosh, Greg, really? You're trying hard to be relevant. Two words. Flappy bird. They had to pull it two years ago because it was so addictive, it was hindering global productivity. And the guy who developed the app, Vietnamese guy, issued a public policy, a po- apology as he retracted the, the game. Uh, you can be addicted to productivity. We call that workaholism, where you think that working hard, being productive, getting stuff done is going to give you an edge in life, make you somebody. How many of you have, have been addicted to a smartphone? Think, Greg, I can stop looking at my smartphone anytime I want. But who is it, the only people who say, I can stop anytime I want? I've never heard a non addict say those words. If you can't stop and you're saying I can stop, chances are it's got control over you. It's compulsive. I've seen compulsive flirting, I've seen compulsive relationships, I've seen addictive relationships, which can become very abusive because of the addiction cycle. But we all have areas in our lives. Paul's list is not exhaustive, but it's incredibly diverse. There's no one who doesn't see themselves somewhere in this list because we're all addicts. We all have uh, an addiction to sin, an addiction to something that we know is wrong, and it's got control over us, and we want it to go away, and we don't know how. It's a doctrine that's unique to Christianity. This doctrinal belief that we human beings, all seven billion of us, have the innate ability to screw things up and we will do so. No other religion teaches that. No other philosophy can explain that. And yet it's foundational to Christianity that we're all broken, we're all damaged, and we're all trying to save ourselves through some kind of addictive pattern. Going to church in that sense is really a lot like going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Uh, You know, if a church is preaching the gospel, then everybody's going to come for the same reason. We're all here because we're, we're addicts of sin. Sin addicts needing a savior. 
sin addicts needing washing, needing freeing. Um, I should be able to walk up here and say, Hi, my name is Greg J., and I'm a sin addict. And all of you respond by saying what? You you got it down. Um, There were people in the Galatian church that were saying that there's a solution to this. There's a solution to this struggle, and it's the Mosaic Law. It's, it's, it's Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, and if we just go back and we, we follow the Old Testament law, yes, with Jesus, but that's, that's not enough. If you, if you get circumcised ritually and you, you follow the, the food laws and the kosher laws and the clothing laws and all the various rules and regulations, then that will set you free. And Paul says that kind of self-salvation... It's not the solution. In fact, it's, it's the problem. It's the problem because recognizing we all have addictions, he wants us to realize the spiritual dynamic of your addiction and my addictions. What does Paul mean? Understanding the spiritual dynamic. What does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh and the spirit? Because this has been a theme throughout Galatians. Uh, for those of you who have studied it, you know this is the third instance in Galatians, the third chapter in a row in which he talks about the difference between the flesh or sinful nature, sometimes translated, and the spirit. The first was in Galatians chapter 3 in which he com- compared circumcision with Jesus. Circumcision, ritual rules, obeying Mosaic laws, getting circumcised, doing all of that as a means of saving yourself and making yourself whole and complete, he calls flesh. And he contrasts that with Jesus and his free salvation, clothing you with his righteousness, forgiving you of all your sin, covering your shame, a a dad in heaven who's wild about you because you have the resume of Jesus. You fed the 5,000. You raised Lazarus from the dead, and you always did what pleased the Father because the resume of Jesus has been credited to you. The righteousness of Christ is on your account. His resume has your name at the top. That contrasted with a bunch of rules and regulations and circumcision. He says, this one's flesh, this one is spirit. The contrast between flesh and spirit in Galatians 3 is between self-salvation and Jesus' salvation. He turns around in the next chapter, Galatians chapter 4, and again, he contrasts flesh and spirit. He, he does it by talking about Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, if you go back in the Old Testament, the story is that Abraham and his wife Sarah were promised a child and many descendants. And they were getting really old, and she was ancient, past menopause, and she wasn't pregnant. And so Abraham and Sarah devised a scheme whereby Abraham would sleep with with another woman named Hagar. And Hagar got pregnant and had a baby named Ishmael, the father of the Arab race. And, uh, And then she got pregnant, Sarah, the wife, the the octogenarian, suddenly, boom, there was one egg still in there somewhere. It dropped. It got fertilized. The Holy Spirit was there. And then she had a baby that was actually their baby, her baby, the child of the promise who became the father of of the nation of Israel, the father of the Jews, uh, uh, Isaac. And he contrasts this uh, couple dealing with, with infertility and barrenness and the shame of that and wanting the promise of God, wanting to be saved from infertility. And they, they, they had two solutions. They had the self-saving solution. I'll just cheat on the side, get someone else pregnant. That's Ishmael. He calls that flesh. 
And he says, Isaac, the child of the promise, the miracle of God, giving them the descendants that they long for and saving them from their barrenness, he calls that spirit. So again, in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4, the contrast between flesh and spirit is between trying to save yourself and Jesus saving you. And then as a part of that same discussion, now we're in chapter 5, and he's giving us another contrast, a contrast between the flesh and a contrast between the spirit. And the flesh is you trying to save yourself. And the works of the flesh, the works of self-salvation, he says, the addictive cycles of trying to save yourself, they're obvious. You're running to alcohol to save yourself from your loneliness and despair and depression. You're, you're, you're hooking up with people. You're going online. You're doing stuff. You're eating way too much. Why are you doing it? He's saying it's because you're trying to save yourself. It's just like what Abraham did when he slept with another woman. It was flesh because he was trying to save himself and his wife from barrenness and having no descendants and their name going out forever. It's the same thing. He says your addictive cycle is an attempt at human self-salvation. See, there's often a distinction among us believers between our professed Savior and our functional Savior. Your professed Savior, Abraham's professed Savior, was the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God and creator of the heavens and the earth. Yahweh was his name, and yet functionally his Savior became Ishmael as he was trusting in himself to save and rescue himself from his barrenness, the effect of the fall. This can look like a lot of different things, but from what effect of the fall are you seeking functional salvation? From what aspect of your brokenness? Is it something in your relationships that you're feeling it or in your career or your marriage or your kids or your extended family? What is it that keeps you up at night that makes you want to run away? What's your sin addiction? And what's it trying to medicate as a functional savior? There's so many examples. Uh, The loneliness that drives us to fantasies or online or hooking up. The failure and the shame that we might self-medicate with food or drugs. Uh, The crushing anxiety that we might medicate with downers or the uppers we might turn to to medicate our sense of failure. Uh, The self-loathing that causes us to stay in a relationship that you know is abusive and controlling and sick and unhealthy and destructive. But there's that longing inside of you that's so powerful. What is it? What aspect of your brokenness? See, you've got to understand the spiritual dynamic of addiction. Addictions are works of the flesh. They're an attempt to save ourselves from the brokenness of the fall. Are you looking for salvation? from a sense of rejection? Are you looking for salvation from shame or from your insecurity? Was it something in your past, maybe something that you've done, or is it something that was done to you that's affected you deeply and you're still looking for rescue, you're looking for comfort, you're looking for escape, you're looking for hope somewhere and it's driven you down a path that you thought was going to give you hope or comfort, but maybe you're realizing that it didn't. See, they all involve a hope of redemption, a desire to be free from the effects of the fall. Recognize the spiritual dynamic of addiction and recognize what they deliver. Paul doesn't mince words. He calls it bondage. He calls it the yoke of slavery. An addiction always promises you salvation. It's going to get better. You'll feel better. You'll have hope. Just trust me. 
and it ends leaving you with utter devastation. Like every false god, it leaves you a slave. Becky Pippert, out of the salt shaker, says this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. And as a means of self-salvation, friends, whatever your addiction looks like, whatever it smells like, wherever you hide it, whatever it's promising, it ends up destroying. In verse 15, he warns of the power to destroy each other completely. And he warns that these functional saviors, these idols, will never lead you to inheritance in God's kingdom. In fact, they're heading in quite the opposite direction. Realize we all have addictions. And recognize the spiritual dynamic that your addiction is a false savior that is promising you that it will rescue you from your brokenness. So how is Jesus a better savior? Jesus is a better savior because rather than promising a palliative that will help you get by, help you get ahead in life, help you get ahead in business, comfort you, give you an escape. He actually goes beneath the surface to actually address the root longing, the shame, the emptiness, the fear, the insecurity, the wounds, however deep they are, by reconciling you to God and giving you a hope and a restoration and a comfort that's not something grasping for straws, but actually is solid and real. If you're longing for escape from suffering, verse 1, Christ has set us free. Your life feels meaningless, verse 13, you were called by God. He has called you and called you to be free. You're lonely and alone. He calls us in verse 13, his brothers. That means you've been adopted into a family that you're not alone anymore. And his brothers, that means you have a father. You have a dad who's not just like Santa Claus. He's actually real. His fingerprints are all over the cosmos. And if you're a Christian, friends... He's your dad, and he loves you. You're the apple of his eye, and he's not going to let go of you because he delights in you, and he is already pleased with you right here, right now, because we're brothers. You have friends, but more than friends, you have family, no matter how alone or how distant you may feel. Feel a need to make something of yourself. Verse 24, you belong to Jesus Christ. That is enough. That is better. That is real than any resume you might try to come up with. You are not going to embellish the resume of Jesus Christ. And it's got your name on it if you're a Christian. Feel your life's going nowhere. Verse 25, he says, now we live by the Holy Spirit. So let us keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, you can't ask for a better life direction. Hear the grace here. Jesus is speaking to you. He's saying, I have freed you. I have called you. 
I've adopted you into my family. You belong to me now, and I declare that you are now alive. Jesus has done all this for you, friends. Let it wash over you. Let it get deep into the sin beneath the sin. Let it take away your need to self-medicate by finding healing and not just a temporary palliative. The cure has come, and his name is Christ Jesus, the one who can reverse every slight and every shame, and every injustice, and every regret, the one who claims you as his very own, who loves you, and who rescued you functionally as a real Savior. You don't need to walk in a trap of self-rescue if you've already been rescued. Addiction is going to take away from you, your family, your relationships, your kids, your church. It drains your spirit, leaves you in bondage, and ultimately demands that you give up your life Jesus Christ has given up his life for you, a better Savior. Now, if this is true, then God may be speaking to you and telling you that there are some things that are going to change, some things that are going to need to change, people you're going to have to talk to, structure you're going to have to bring in, light that's going to have to expose things. And yet, with all of that, that begins by letting Jesus into the wounds. Letting him touch you in that place that you don't even want anybody to know about. You don't want them to know about it. You don't want them to see it. You don't want them to touch it. But when Jesus comes in to open up to him those wounds, that he might touch you and set you free, the one who takes barren soil and makes it come alive and bear fruit, yes, there's work ahead. It's to be expected. Paul is telling them they have to work for their freedom. But in your sorrow and loneliness and pain, friends, Jesus is reaching out to you and inviting you to come to me. He's saying it's going to be okay. He knows temptation well, and he wants to walk with you so that the gospel can really do so much more in your life than it's done to this point. Friends, if he's speaking to you now, I plead with you, let him in. Let him heal. He is a better Savior. You don't need the other stuff when Jesus himself comes to you. Saying you're not alone. He speaks to the brokenness. I have a photo here, I believe, of uh, this uh, is Trisha Zalewski. This was her back in 2006. I want to tell you her story. She'll tell it to you in her own words. She says this. She says, as a young child, I lived in a very dysfunctional home. My parents got divorced when I was just three years old, and my dad left us, and I didn't see him again until I was 10. Says, I remember as a child watching as my mother was abused physically, sexually, emotionally, in every way. I remember watching her as the police showed up and arrested her and took her away. I saw my mom prostituting herself to get by. As a a little girl, I would be there as my mother would shoot heroin in her veins in an effort to escape the pain of this life. And all of this was before my 10th birthday. The first drug I ever tried was cocaine. That was with my mom at the age of 10. When I was 16, I got involved in a drug called crystal meth took complete hold of my life. My sister-in-law had a meth lab in her house, so I was able to get high all the time and any time. When I was 17, I got married. 
I had three kids by the age of 23, but because of my drug addiction, my children were taken away from me by the Division of Youth and Family Services. I can remember kneeling on my floor, on my hands and knees, looking through the cracks in the boards, hoping to find just one piece of meth to fulfill my desire. There were times I would stand in front of my stove for hours on end, scraping it for crystal meth. I I weighed just 80 pounds, and I wouldn't eat, and I wouldn't sleep for days, even weeks at a time. I had, had sores all over my body from being paranoid and just sitting there, strung out for hours, picking at my skin, picking at my skin. Everything that I was feeling was very much unbearable for me to understand, and I had no idea how to identify any of my feelings, let alone to see the problems beneath them. My life was dying right before my very own eyes. I I was crying out for help, and I didn't even realize it. And after my children were taken into foster care, the courts told me I had one year to comply with all the court-ordered services in order to get my kids back. To be honest, I turned the opposite way and just went back to what I've always known, and that's running from my problems. My husband and I, we ended up homeless. We'd sleep on a gas station floor in the middle of winter, and there were times when the only place to live was out of our car. I've stolen from my family. I became a stripper so that I could pay for hotels and have a place to get high. During this time, I'd get phone calls to see if I could make it to visits with my kids. But I wouldn't. I couldn't. At that time, I could not face my children. I couldn't wipe my own tears away from my own eyes. How could I possibly wipe away their tears from their eyes? The the pain that I was feeling left me hopeless and scared and completely lost. Our lawyers and the division told me in exact words, There is no hope for your case. You will never get your children back. They will be adopted to someone else. She says, I can remember this day like it was yesterday. In December 2006, my husband and I were driving around completely aimless. All I could do was cry. I couldn't find my meth for that day, so my emotions were were fully staring me in the face and All I could see was my children's eyes staring right at me. And not only that, but I remember seeing my eyes staring right at my own mother, begging her, Mommy, Mommy, please stop getting high. I couldn't handle it. I told my husband, stop the car. And I got out and I screamed at the top of my lungs this simple but most powerful word, Help. I called up my stepmom. I told her, okay, I'm, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. I've, I've lost my life, and I can't seem to get hold of myself. What do I do? One week later, my stepmom and dad were driving me to an inpatient addiction treatment program. That night, I was sitting there on my bed, and for the first time in my life, Jesus spoke to me. This is the very first time I ever felt and heard his voice speaking to my spirit. I'll never forget this as long as I live. So I'm, I'm reading in one of the Gospels, and these words literally popped out of my Bible and hit me square at the core of my heart. 
Jesus was speaking and the words he said, it was like he was speaking them directly to me right there in that drug treatment center, right there on that bed. Jesus was saying, do you want to get well? Pick up your mat and walk and see you are well again, but stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That day I surrendered my life to Jesus. I accepted him into my heart. And when I did that, I can remember falling face down on the floor, screaming and weeping and not even knowing or understanding why. But to my amazement, the Lord was waiting for me, waiting for those words to come from my mouth. I surrender. Again, Jesus spoke to me in that room, by that bed, in that addiction treatment center. And he said, Tricia, I will never leave you. I was so overwhelmed because for once in my life, I knew what it felt like to be truly loved, to be sincerely loved. As I worked on my recovery, scriptures kept focusing my heart on on him. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. She writes, I'm a new creation. I've been reborn. God has put a new song in my heart. He's opened my eyes and my ears to his never-ending love. I have a more recent photo here, 10 years later. Since that time, she says, God has returned my children home. Jesus has been teaching me how to be a mom and how to be a wife. He's showing me the way in which I shall go. I was so consumed with darkness, but now I feel like I'm overflowing with the fragrance of God's love and grace. God has a future for me. I'm I'm going to college now to become a social worker. My case with, with the Department of Youth and Family Services after four years has finally been dismissed. My kids are all on the honor roll. My marriage is being built on a foundation that can't be shaken. And all the glory goes to my Savior, Jesus. He forgave my sins. He never forgot me. He, never, he, he created me and prepared me for this. He's transforming me. This is my testimony of the power and grace of God in Jesus and his overflowing love for you as well as for me. My heart is his. He's the only one who humbled me and molded me into the woman that I'm becoming today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, she says. Thank you. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Friends, do you believe the good news? Do you believe Jesus? He's a better Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that you are a better Savior because you reach down and you actually heal the wounds underneath. You heal the broken condition that would drive us to various things. Lord, for all among us who are enslaved today, and Lord, we're all enslaved to something, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself to be a better Savior, the Son of God. He who the Son of God sets free shall be free indeed. We consecrate to you the elements of this sacrament, Lord, that you would administer the good news to us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.